Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Hope you guys are feeling rested. Got a little extra hour. Or maybe some of you were like, I'm going to have an extra hour tomorrow, so I'm going to stay up and, like, two hours later. Some of you, anybody do that? Anybody? Anybody? No? All right, good job. We got some discipline in here. All right, we got, okay, there is some one honest person. Um, so uh, before we dive in this morning, I want to reiterate what Heather mentioned before. I'm very excited to announce that we do have uh, our fourth through sixth grade class starting next week. Say next week. And so maybe you don't have a fourth through sixth grader, and so you think, well, this doesn't apply to me, but your neighbors do. And so, like, you've been kind of thinking, well, I'm not sure if I want to invite or engage them on that level or bring them to church or invite them to come with me, but now there's an opportunity. So open your eyes, think about that, um, and, and I am excited. It is, again, I want to reiterate that it will be for the 11 a.m., so our second service uh, for the indefinite future, we'll be doing this. And so, um, and, and I, I also want to say, that it, this is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do with ch kids' check-ins. So they'll check in, but for the fourth through sixth graders, they'll come up and worship with us upstairs. Now that's intentional. I want to emphasize this. That is intentional because uh, we want to worship together as a family. This is a part of a transition into the uh, just a, it's seeing and knowing and seeing, like it's it's powerful to see mom and dad worshiping Jesus. Amen? And so we want to embrace them in that. And I also want to, to reiterate that um, you don't always have to have your kids down there. Like, bring them up here. It's okay. And, and if your babies cry or something like that during the sermon, I'm good with it. All right? I'll, I hear life. That's what I hear. Now, obviously, if no one can hear anything else, then we've got a room in the back and that's okay. But please don't ever feel embarrassed by that. Amen? Okay, so um, I am excited. Again, we, our desire is with, and our kids' ministry is to partner with parents as the primary disciples of their children. And so uh, remember that when your kids are downstairs, they're learning about Jesus, all right? They're, they're not just um, being watched after. They're being encouraged. They're being prayed for. They're being pointed and taught the Word of God, pointed to the Word of God. So our desire is to meet each child right where they are, whether they've been with us for their whole lives or whether they're brand new. We want to enter into the dialogue that God has been having with them and partner with you as the parents in this walk, in their life, together loving them like Jesus and towards Jesus. So um, if you've been tracking, I want to point this out, if you've been tracking with the material that the kids have been going over downstairs, you're going to notice that there's been some crossover recently um, it, it, with what we're talking about in our sermon series, okay? And so maybe you don't have kids downstairs, and now you can just see that we're just synced up, okay? So this is, this is significant. So for example, the lesson series in Risen Kids is a series called God Speaks, that's where they've been for the past couple of weeks. And so the primary verse for that series comes out of James 4, 8, and which says, come near to God and he will come near to you. All right? And so that's in line with our current sermon series that we're calling Hunger and Thirst, right? Which is about cultivating a desire for more of God. And so the themes are similar, which then provides an opportunity for God to teach us more about himself even through our kids and what they are learning. So I want to encourage you to engage them on what they are learning. And so I, I want to help us. That, that's actually going to help us enter into the dialogue that God is having, not only with our kids, but even with us. And we talk about it, and we discuss it, and we share life in Christ with each other, other even the children. Especially, you might say, with the children. And so, um, and yes, you can learn a lot about who God is through your children. And if you don't think that that's true, you're not paying attention. Okay? And so, for example, I want to just to show you kind of a, a, how to bridge the gap here a little bit. Our kids this morning are learning from 1 Samuel 16. It's an Old Testament passage where the prophet Samuel anoints the shepherd boy, David, as king. And so God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king. And so Samuel obeys, and he's expecting God to point out one of Jesse's oldest, strongest sons. But instead, God points out the opposite of what he expected. 
And he has to lean in and be sensitive to what God is doing and saying because he points him to his youngest son, David. And then what we see, and I love this image, we see Samuel anoint this shepherd boy with a full ram's horn full of oil. And so the point of the passage that's going to be emphasized to our children downstairs is that God doesn't judge by outward appearance. He didn't choose David because he was the strongest or the best. He chose him as king because he's God. And his ways are higher than our ways. A lot of people try and find a reason for why he chose David. But when you look at David's life, you realize, nope, don't know why he chose David. But he did. Why? Because he's God and you're not. Right? Why did he choose you? I don't know. Why did he choose me? I don't know. But he did. Amen? And so this is the power of this story. And so this is what, what a great question to ask your children is why did God choose David instead of one of his older, stronger brothers? Like, that's a great conversation starter, right? Like, Samuel needed to pay attention not just to his own preferences and his own ways, but to God's ways and what he's doing. And so when we have this kind of, this, this question, this conversation starter, like, I want you to take advantage of this, even on your drive home with your kids, but I also want to take it a step further with you. Like, get that windshield time in with your kids, but I also want to uh, uh, encourage you to take it a step further, because nobody knows your children better than you do, and you can impart deeper truths into your children than they're going to get in an hour on a Sunday morning or, or an hour and a half, right? And so I want you to see, even in this story, that what we're talking about here, it goes, it, it, it's a great lesson, but I, this morning you can take it a step further um, with even a fuller understanding of what we're going to talk about in our passage today. I want you to see that the Old Testament stories about King David often point us directly to the ultimate king, King Jesus. He's the greater David. A lot of what the Old Testament is pointing us to in King David is preparing us for Jesus. Because where David fell short, Jesus fulfilled. In fact, I want you to see that even in this visual display in 1 Samuel 16, where David is anointed as king, it's a picture of what we're even reading today and what we've been in in chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians for a while. Like, for example, look at this. When Samuel anointed David, okay, follow me, he didn't just give him a little dab on the forehead. Like when, sometimes when we think of anointing, we think like, boop. Right? Follow the image. He doused him with a whole ram's horn full of oil. Think about that. It would have been like being plunged under a flood for David. And that oil represented the Holy Spirit. Throughout the scriptures, oil represents the Holy Spirit. His body would have been completely immersed in it, saturated in it. The anointing would have started at his head, which is important, and then it, got, it would have gotten all over his ears and his eyes and his nose and his mouth. It would have run down his back and shoulders, even his arms and hands, all the way to his feet. The body would have been soaked in the anointing oil. Can you see it? Got the picture? So this morning I want to show you the significance of this Old Testament image from 1 Samuel 16 for our passage in the New Testament this morning in 1 Corinthians 12. See, 1 Corinthians 12 draws upon this imagery of the anointed body of King Jesus. And it uses this image to illustrate who the church is as Christ's spirit-saturated and unified body upon the earth. That's what it calls you. It calls us the body of Christ. Unified, saturated, plunged, baptized in the spirit of God. In fact, the word Christ, or Messiah both mean the anointed one, or even literally 
the oily one. Hamashiach, the Messiah. That was the title. That's what they were looking forward to. When they expected the Messiah to come and save the world, you know what they were saying? I can't wait for the oily one. The anointed one. The one who's oozing with God's spirit. Even God with us. The oily one. How cool is that? And so we're told in Colossians 1 that Jesus then is even the head of the body, which is the church. So it's from his anointing that we as his body, the body of Christ, receive our spiritual immersion or baptismo. It's the same word, immersed. So last week we looked at verse 12 through 26 of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. And the emphasis of unity is what we focused on. Unity within the body of Christ. We looked at how God has designed us to operate in a God-oriented and others-oriented fashion. To love God and love one another. This is what the body of Christ does. And so we looked at the two different ways that our sinful, self-centered nature tends to draw back from that type of gospel community. Whether it's through, because of inferiority where we all feel like we don't belong or, or, or like we don't belong, like because I'm not like that person, I don't belong to the rest of the body. That's inferiority. Or um, because I'm not gifted in the same way they are, or, or then I don't belong. That's, that's that struggle of inferiority which focuses on yourself. Or, or the opposite would be superiority where we think like, you know, well, because I'm, uh, I'm like this body part, I don't really need that body part because they're not as significant as me. That's superiority. And so we looked at this last week and we saw like this is not about our preferences. This is not about our gifting. This is about the unity that God has established within his diverse range of gifts that make up the body. This is the power of it. And so we saw that most people actually tend to struggle with both inferiority and superiority because both are self-centered rather than Christ-centered and others-oriented. And so we look to Jesus and point one another to Jesus and point one another to the same spirit from which we all drink and are soaked in. And I love the language. It's not just what you're immersed in, it's what you're drinking. From the inside out, right? And so instead of thinking about our own preferences or gift sets or attempting to mold others into carbon copies of ourselves and our own preferences, we point one another and encourage one another to Jesus Christ. And so doing, we fan into flame the gifts that God has placed within those around us, even within ourselves, and we unify in that same spirit, that same gospel purpose as one body with many parts united by the same Holy Spirit. And so that's the common denominator. That's the key. It's all about Jesus. It's all about unity in Jesus and in his spirit, which is what I want to drop back and hone in on this morning for the rest of our time. This is why I want to drop back to verse 12 through 13. So look back with me. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 13. Two verses. It says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to hone hone in on this baptism or this immersion in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about this morning spirit baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the construction of the Greek terms in this passage is the same construction that's used every time the baptism of the Holy Spirit is used throughout the New Testament. So I want you to see that all, if you're in Christ, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. What? We're going to talk about that this morning. So what is it? What is spirit baptism? Is it, is it different from Jesus? Or I'm sorry, is it different from um, that baptism, that just, just regular baptism? Like what, what about what, was, what John was doing in Matthew 3? John's baptism, is it different? Is spirit baptism different from that water baptism? When does it happen? When does spirit baptism happen? How does it happen? What does it do? 
How often can it happen? Is there a difference between spirit baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit? So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, or even if all these questions have already confused you, here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get this morning. Spirit baptism describes what happens when you become a Christian. Track with me. Spirit baptism describes what happens when you become a Christian. So as a roadmap for the rest of our time, we're going to look at John's water baptism first, and then we're going to look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or spirit baptism second, and then finally we're going to look at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so let's back up, and we're going to start with John's water baptism. Remember John the Baptist, the guy that shows up and he's baptizing people in the desert? And it says this, and and we actually began our series with this a few weeks ago in Matthew 3, where we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist, who says in Matthew 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but, say but, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John himself makes it clear that what he's doing will be superseded by the baptism that's available in Christ. There's something greater available in Christ that's not available in John's baptism. It doesn't do away with the need for repentance, but it's sort of spiritually upgraded in a sense in Christ. So what's the difference? Well, John's baptism was an old covenant baptism. Okay, It was simply an act of obedience and repentance. John was calling people to turn away from their sin, and that turning away was motivated by a very real and a very good fear of God. And that fear doesn't necessarily go away, okay? This is a good thing. So John was preparing the way for Christ and God's people by getting their attention through a very real act of purification and repentance, which means to turn away from sin and turn toward God. So it was an act of preparation. Remember, it says that he was preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And so this was a posturing of the people to turn back to God. It it had a lot to do with their posture before God. He was having them turn to the things of God, to the very good law of God. The law is good, amen? The law is good, amen? (laughs) Amen. And so it was a call, though, to stop transgressing the law and and to follow this, reestablish your grip firmly upon the Lord. It was a call to do better. It was a call to repent or else. You don't believe me? Listen to the language that John uses in verse 12, Matthew 3, verse 12. Look at this. Right after he just says that, this call to repentance, His winnowing fork, talking about Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, the fire is coming, both for the repentant and for the unrepentant. But for those who repent, They posture themselves in a way to receive a refining, heart-purifying fire. And it comes through spirit baptism. But for those who refuse and live in a posture of unrepentance, the fire will come as judgment and eternal destruction. Thing is, a fire's coming either way. That was the message. That's how he prepared the way. And guys, that's a sobering message. But Jesus comes. That's, this is the but Jesus part, right? Because just because you received John's baptism, hear this, didn't mean you were receiving salvation. A lot of people do a whole lot of confessing and not a whole lot of repenting and believing. Right? 
So follow this. Remember, throughout the Old Testament, this type of purification ceremony was actually common. It took place all the time. People throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant were often called back to obedience and the law of God. We see that water then is often used as a symbolic external cleansing and purification ceremony throughout the Old Testament. Over and over, God's people are called back to him through this type of purifying ceremony and external cleansing. But the theme of the Old Covenant message in the Old Testament was that no matter how hard you try, no matter how tightly you grip God's law and your obedience, you're all going to fall short. No matter how hard you wash, there's nothing you can do to get it all off because it's a heart issue. That's the message of the Old Testament. There's nothing you can do to be good enough to earn salvation. Generation after generation, washing and washing and washing, but they just can't get clean enough. This is often, unfortunately, how people perceive Christianity today. They think that it's about a white-knuckled discipline to be better or else. Obey or else. Give, serve, sacrifice. Read your Bible, attend, or else. Behave, or else. That's why so many people think that to be a Christian is to be a perfect person, and if you have any sin issues in your life whatsoever, then you're a hypocrite. You should be unaccepted, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Why even grace the doors of a church if that's what this is all about? You see how twisted it is? Guys, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Actually, this is the difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism, which is spirit baptism. Hear me. It's not wrong to want to obey God's law. That's kind of the point. The law is good. We love the law of God. It's given for our good. Amen? But, listen to me, guys. The reason we love God's law is not simply because it's for our good. It is for our good. It is. But that's not the only reason we love his law. Listen, that reason won't last it won't. That's an old covenant motivation. And it's unsustainable precisely because it's easily twisted in upon ourselves. We are easily twisted in upon ourselves. It's easily, that becomes a self-centered motivation. That's the motivation that people wanted to come down to get baptized by John in the first place. That's not bad. That's good, right? It's good. We want that. That's a desire for repentance. But listen to me. This is so important. The reason we now love God and even can love God's law is because we love him and he loved us because he loved us first, right? The reason we love God's law is because we love God, because we love what he loves. You can't make yourself love. Good luck with that. If you only love what's good for you, then your primary motivator is still yourself. So, how do we fulfill a commandment to love? It's a commandment! This is why they fell short throughout the entire Old Testament. How do you fulfill a commandment to love? You can't. You can want to, but the only way that you can actually do it is if you're given a new heart. This is the key. Because the only way any of us could ever have any true love for God or the things of God is by first receiving His love for us. 1 John 4.10 makes this so clear. Listen to this. Verse 10 through 14. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. <laughs> beloved. Say beloved. beloved. That's you. He's talking about you. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So we were dead in our sin and dead is dead. Dead people can't make themselves alive, right? We had no real capability of loving God. Outside of Christ, humanity can't love God. Even our best attempts at obedience are always going to be primarily self-serving outside of Christ. So this is the essence of all false religion. It has the appearance of godliness, but without God's love, it has denied the power of godliness, which is all about relationship with him. In order to lay your whole life down in a complete, like, heartfelt surrender to the Savior King, it requires a new heart which requires the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus saved us unto. It's not just about what we've been saved from. It's who we've been saved unto and for. Right? This is the relationship that Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension provides. This is the gospel. It's not simply white-knuckled obedience or else. It's heartfelt obedience, even in the face of difficulty, and even sacrifice because, not just or else, but because, because we love him and we love him because he first loved us and he made a way to love him by purifying us from the inside out with his spirit, which is only accessible to us because of the cross. See, this is what both the Old Testament prophets and the law, the whole Old Testament, man, people like Moses and Elijah and then John the Baptist are preparing humanity for. But the fulfillment of this promise is found in Christ alone. It's what they were talking about. Listen, Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel, remember this? He, he, maybe you don't. I'll read it to you. He prophesied, in, he prophesied God's words in Ezekiel verse 30, I'm sorry, chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, and he said this. Follow with me. This is a promise. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. <laughs> and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. is looking forward to a day when God's people want to be careful to obey him. It's not a dismissal of obedience. It's an embrace of it and an empowering unto it and a grace that covers us when we fall short of it. Because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Not just so we can get something from him. Not just so we can escape his wrath. This is talking about spirit baptism, which happens at the moment of true faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Look at Ezekiel 37, the next chapter, verse 1 through 6. And it says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Like, what do I know? I don't know. You know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. That's the word for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's ruach. I will cause breath. Ruach. I will cause the Spirit to enter you and you shall live. 
and I will, say, I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. You didn't do it, I did it. Isaiah 32, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitless field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. You see the imagery? Dry land, now fruitful. Isaiah 44, verse 3, same, same picture, same imagery. It's throughout the Old Testament. For I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Jeremiah 31, verse 10 through 12 says this. this is all Old Testament. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, which he's talking about his people, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Sin's too strong for you. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. All this imagery matters. And over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. I would say that we are in the already not yet overlap of this prophetic vision. We'll talk more about that as we go forward, but this is what becoming a Christian is like, guys. It's like a dry and parched earth suddenly being flooded with the Spirit of God and then it's just coming to life. Like having the Spirit of God breathed into you and suddenly coming to life. This doesn't mean that you're immediately perfect, but it does mean you're perfectly loved. And that's what transforms us. Because this is the gospel. God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live. The life we could not live. And he died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection. And he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when we die, but it starts now. Why? Because the veil is torn and access has been given to his spirit baptized, immersed, plunged, and soaked in the Spirit of God, not just on the outside, but even from the inside out, because you are given new hearts, new desires, new affections. Because of the Spirit, we're actually able to love God and one another as He loves us. And you know the only people that can do that are Christians. That's why Jesus said, this is how they will know you are my disciples, is when you love one another the same way I'm loving you. Which means forgiving one another when you don't love the way he loved you. And we demonstrate grace. God, I love the church. But not as much as I love Jesus. Amen. Here we go. See, dry religion is satisfied with begrudging obedience. As long as you're behaving, religion doesn't care if your heart is far from God. But Jesus isn't satisfied with that. Right? He wants your heart. He desires worship in spirit and in truth. It's not simply a white-knuckled striving for obedience. It's the overflow of hearts who love God and love what He loves and delight in what He delights in and lay their lives down in a joyful sacrifice because He delights in it with us. That's worship. And so He delights in His people. And if you're in Christ, man, that, He's talking about you. Even when it's difficult, even when it's a struggle, that's only possible to, to take joy in difficulty. That's only possible by the Spirit. Right? And the Spirit, then there's a purification that takes place. Suddenly things that you didn't used to care about, they matter now. That's actually called conviction. It's a good thing. It's not the same thing as condemnation. Often people reject conviction because they think it's condemnation. 
Condemnation says, though, you failed and you're not enough. And there's nothing you can do. Sin is who you are. You're doomed to the consequences. You might as well identify with them. That's condemnation. Conviction, though, says that's not who you are. That's not who you are. It was who you used to be, (laughs) but not anymore. Jesus paid the price, and his grace is sufficient for you. Now stand up and follow him as your Savior and King. Sin is as far as the east is from the west. Conviction says that's not who you are. Condemnation causes us to wallow in it, but conviction draws us out of sin and into the arms of our Savior King. There's a Shane Bernard song. I I tend to mention it a lot because I love it, and, and I think it captures this tension so well, and it shows us the way forward in Christ. It's called Embracing Accusations. Listen to the lyrics. The father of lies. Whew, I'm not gonna get through this one. The father of lies coming to steal, kill, and destroy all of my hopes of being good enough. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed. That I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Embracing accusations. Because it's true. I cannot gain salvation. You ignore that and you ignore your need for a savior. That'll preach. Or you live your life failing miserably at trying to be your own savior. The song continues. Oh, the devil singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently over me that he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. I I listen to this one when I run sometimes, and it doesn't matter how tired I am. I get to that point, and I'm sprinting, man. (laughs) Right? Because this is the heart of worship. This is who we are. Like, have you forgotten the refrain? Maybe you've never accepted the refrain that Jesus saves. Maybe you've never really come to grips with the curse. The reason the majority of this world has no idea what Jesus has done for them is because they refuse to come to grips with the reality that they are cursed and gone astray and cannot gain salvation on their own. Spirit baptism describes what happens when you become a Christian. It gives you a new heart from the inside out. And listen to me, it doesn't require water. It doesn't require religious ritual. It's what happens when we confess, repent, and believe by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's what Jesus is talking about when when he told Nicodemus in John 3 that he needed to be born again, not just of water, but of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about spirit baptism. It's why when we baptize you with water here, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that ceremony doesn't save you. It's simply the outward proclamation of your inward faith. And honestly, it doesn't matter how you feel in that moment. It doesn't matter what your emotions are doing in that moment because this reality is not dependent upon your feelings. Neither is his presence. And yet, part of an obedient heart is reflected in desiring to obey his command to be baptized. Now, some of you may have grown up thinking that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an entirely secondary experience from what happened when you became a Christian. I was actually taught that as well and believed it for a really long time. And if that's you and you're in here, then I hope this is informative for you. And if not, that's okay. Welcome. Okay, we can walk through and talk through this for a long time. It's great. But I'm going to tell you a quick story about my, my experience with this. I, was, I became a Christian just before my senior year of high school. Um, and it was a clear heart change in me. I mean, radical. But that year was very difficult. My senior year of high school was extremely difficult. And I found myself really struggling with sin habits that before I didn't struggle with. They didn't really bother me at all. Like it was stuff that suddenly I, I, I felt like I had become more sinful after becoming a Christian. But it wasn't that I had become more sinful. It's just that now I, I actually cared. It mattered to me. 
I was experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but I didn't really know what to do with it, and it felt like condemnation. I felt gross all the time in my anger, in my pride, in my frustration, in my self-serving, in my self-seeking, in my self, 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 self. And I didn't have anyone in my life at that time to remind me of the gospel and to help me stand up out of all of that mess. But when I got to college, I was immersed. God immersed me in very real gospel community. And, and I remember one night very hesitantly confessing all of these things to friends that I had. And, and, and they all circled around me and they laid hands on me and they began to pray the truths of the gospel over me. They began to pray over me and point me to Jesus and remind me of who I am and to ask God to fill me with his spirit and help me walk in the identity that he declared over me. They didn't just say, God, help him stop sinning. They did say that. They did. That was part of it, but they pointed me to the presence and the power of God. It was like somebody had wrapped me in a warm blanket from the inside. It's, a, it's hard to describe. Like, I was a very hard-hearted teenager. Some of you might be, find that hard to believe, but I, 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 like, I, I never cried. Tears were like not a thing that I did, right? And yet, when these guys were praying over me, man, I, I couldn't hold. It was like a floodgate opened, and it was pure joy. I was loved and I was accepted and I was approved of, not just by these guys, but by the creator of the universe. And I felt this surge in me, like a warm wind was rushing through me. Now remember, I'm a Christian at this point. I had been. I, it's hard to describe what it was. It felt like I was coming home, but also like I was experiencing like the best ride or like greatest rush I'd ever experienced. You know, it was like a combination of the two. And, and I told one of the guys afterwards who had been praying for me about it, and I was like, what was that? And he smiled real big, and he said, you just got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I was like, but I've already been baptized. And he's like, look with me at Acts 19. And he reads this story to me in Acts chapter 19 about how a group of people had been baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit until Paul came and laid hands on them. And so I was told that's what had happened to me. I had been plunged in repentance, but not the Spirit. And for a long time, that's what I thought Spirit baptism was, like a secondary experience of God's power and grace and presence in my life. That's how I perceived it. Let me read Acts 19. This is the passage that they pointed me to, my friend pointed me to, who I love and respect and so thankful for this man. Verse 1 says this, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So remember, John's baptism was about external purification, but the issue was internal. The issue of sin is heart level. John's baptism prepared and postured people for God, but it was not a reception of him. But this isn't describing disciples of Jesus. They weren't disciples of John. I'm sorry, they were disciples of John. These weren't Christians yet. Because they hadn't totally received the full gospel of grace. But they were prepared and they were postured and they were ready for it. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Now, we know that not all people speak in tongues and not all prophesy. We'll see that later. We'll talk about it later. So it's not the only sign of his spirit dwelling in you. But here, as in a few other places, we see that it was a sign that the spirit was indeed at work in and through them. And so then what happened to me then that night? So what happened to me? What was that? Was it just my imagination? 
Because I've had some people come and say, ah, that wasn't spirit baptism, nope, and they water it down. No, that's not what that was. Well, what was it then? Was it just silly emotional responses that I should just dismiss? No. Not at all. In fact, what I experienced was extremely biblical. There are multiple times throughout the New Testament where Christians are described as being filled with the Spirit. Follow me. This is very important. Often, multiple times for the same people. Happens often. Okay? That doesn't mean that the Spirit wasn't already in them. It's simply a way to describe moments when he makes his presence known in a powerful and manifest way for all kinds of different reasons. And that's what I experienced that night for the first time. It wasn't spirit baptism. I'd already had that when I became a Christian. I was simply filled with the Spirit. I was filled with it. P.S. I want to say this. My friend who told me that that was spirit baptism wasn't like leading me astray. He wasn't like a false teacher. <laughs> okay? We got to put the stones down when it comes to this stuff. Like he was a godly, godly man. Still is so thankful that, for that guy. Okay? I'm eternally grateful for him and his love for God and his love for me and his hand in guiding me through what was a very real experience, okay, and pointing me to Jesus and his spirit. Praise God for that. He just had his terms off a bit, I would say. That's it. It's not a big deal. This is definitely not a primary doctrine worth dividing over, okay? God's grace is all over it, but again, I think God's word is clear that what I experienced that night was not spirit baptism. It was spirit-filling which is the language that Scripture uses to describe this kind of thing happening often, over and over again, in and through his people, throughout the New Testament. And I've experienced it, guys, countless times since then. Sometimes less intensely, and others more intensely. I'd probably say I'm experiencing some of it right now. And so often it happens when praying for people, not just praying in general or, 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 or singing, or, or sorry, it, yes, in general, praying in general, praying over people, praying just period, singing, thinking about who God is, both with people or when I'm by myself. It, it doesn't mean that he's less present than he was before, okay? Like when we say, Lord, we, we ask your presence to come, what does that mean? He's omnipresent. He's always with us. But there is something significant. There's something manifest in a way that he can come that was a little different than before. There's a way that he's kind of breaking through in some manifest way. And isn't that what we're after? His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? And, and this isn't just a passive thing, okay? Okay. We're called, even commanded, to actively posture ourselves to receive his filling. Ephesians 5, read with me. Ephesians 5, verse 14. And we're wrapping this up. He's quoting Old Testament scripture saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the rest of the passage goes off about giving thanks and encouraging each other. In other words, not just focusing on yourself. Like to say that I was baptized in the Spirit in that moment, uh, yeah, that, that the moment I received Jesus as Savior and Lord and, and given a new heart, that does not dismiss the power of God to move in our lives. If anything, it, it should increase our hunger and thirst for more because we see throughout the Bible that His filling isn't just a one-time thing. Are you hungry? Are you hungry for that? Are you thirsty for that? I want to encourage you to cultivate a desire for more of him. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the second verse of our, that we're focusing in. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One of my favorite stories, and I'm, I'm closing with this, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of Christ's uh, first miracle in his earthly ministry. And I think this really drives it home. The scene opens with Jesus at a wedding with all of his friends and family in Cana. It's a heavenly scene, right? Think about it. 
Like it's intentionally designed to remind us of the ultimate wedding feast described in Revelation. It's how his ministry begins. Is that a wedding? How good is that? And so he's celebrating uh, uh, this marriage, which is ultimately a celebration of the marriage of Christ and the church, which is the beauty of what we see in Revelation. But in this celebration, his mother Mary comes to Jesus and says, they don't have any wine. There's no more wine left. And so throughout the Bible, this is important, wine symbolizes joy and God's blessing. Not drunkenness, but joy and blessing. And so the fact that they have run out speaks to the spiritual barrenness of society. But now Jesus is here. And his mother Mary seems to know where the true source of all joy and blessing actually resides. So she comes to Jesus. Follow this. But Jesus tells her his hour has not yet come, which was an allusion to the hour of his death at the cross. Meaning that when she brings up the wine of all joy and blessing, Jesus immediately connects it to his death or his blood poured out at the cross. You tracking with me? I know it's been long. I want you to get this. Jesus knew that all weddings ultimately look forward to the great wedding, and the source of all joy and blessing is ultimately what he will provide at the cross. His blood. Which is why what happens next is such a perfect beginning to Christ's ministry, which begins at a wedding and ultimately ends at a wedding. John 2, verse 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars up with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, most of the time when we read this story, we think, wow, Jesus loves a good party, and he can turn water to wine. That's cool. And it is. And he does love a good party. But the ultimate party celebrates something way deeper. There's something significant being communicated here if you'll let the Spirit reveal it to you. Because those six stone water jars that held up to 30 gallons of water were there for the Jewish rites of purification. They were water jars designed for external washing. Jesus turned them to wine that represents his blood to be consumed from the inside out, to purify from the inside out. And they celebrated it at a wedding that points to the ultimate wedding feast between Christ and his church. Do you see it? Do you see it? I love this stuff. It's drinking from the true source of joy and blessing which flows from the cross. And it provides our access to drink from the same spirit of God. This is who we are as the church. The veil of separation has been torn. The stone's been rolled away. Even now the question is, are you thirsty for more of him? Holy Spirit, come. Let's pray.